Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. If you are in the threes and fours class, you are dismissed to your class in the back. We will begin reading in verse 22 here in just a moment. And we'll read all the way through 25. That's just four verses, but buckle up. There's a lot to see and a little time to see it. Mark chapter 14, verse 22. Now, if you have been around Christianity for very long, you will immediately recognize this text this morning. This text that we're looking at is where the Lord Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. One of the most important moments of Christian worship in the church that has been happening in churches all around the world in different languages and different cultures and different generations for 2,000 years. And so we're going to read this text and you're going to recognize it and then we're going we're gonna to pray and then we're going to spend some time in the background. We, we need to understand the background of this text and why it is they're sharing this meal and this moment. And then we're going to look at two things the Lord's Supper is not Three things that God is doing through the Lord's Supper, and three ways we should be responding to God through the Supper. Mark 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, he, being Jesus, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, take This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. All right, let's pray together. God, help us to understand why it is that you have given us the gift of the Lord's Supper. Help us to see its significance and why the eternal God of the universe, who has created vast mountain ranges and galaxies beyond our ability to explore that you and all of your infinite wisdom and majesty and ability to create beautiful things God help us to see why you would inspire and command that we partake in something like the Lord's Supper what is your intentions for this moment of worship in the life of a Christian Help us to see it. Help us to savor it. And I pray for the non-Christians in the room that they would see the message that it represents and believe upon Jesus. And we pray all these things by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So in last week's text, Randy showed us that Jesus was making preparations for a very important meal. He sends two of his disciples to secure a location for Jesus and his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal. Now, at this point in the narrative, 
you are feeling the tension mount. I mean, everything thus far in the Gospel of Mark has been moving you toward the cross. And at this point in the narrative, things are slowing down to focus on just one moment in time. Jesus has just been anointed for burial, right? By a worshiper who has brought oil to him, signifying that he was going to be dying soon. We've seen now that that the religious leaders are actively scheming to murder Jesus, and now we've been told that Judas is aiming to betray Jesus and deliver Jesus into their hands. Jesus' death at this moment in the story is imminent. You feel at any moment someone could bust down the door and, and capture Jesus and take him to the death he's been predicting. But before his arrest, before his betrayal, before his crucifixion, Jesus desires to share a particular meal with his disciples. And I say a particular meal because this meal is not just any meal. Jesus has had a lot of meals with his disciples over the course of his ministry. But in Luke chapter 22, verse 15, speaking of this same account, it says this about Jesus. Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Before I suffer. This meal is what Jesus earnestly desired to eat with his disciples. And we know this from Mark simply by the care that Jesus has taken to arrange this moment, right? If you remember last week, Jesus sort of flexed his divine knowledge with his disciples. Hey, go to this place. You're going to see a person. Go to do this thing. They're going to have a room for me. Just tell them the teacher has need of it. Jesus has arranged all the details for this moment to take place. It's not an accident that this moment is coming together in the, at the evening that they should be celebrating something called the Passover. And we cannot understand the significance of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist. We cannot understand the significance of it without first understanding the significance of the Passover. Right? The Passover in the history of the Jewish pe- people was in integral to being a Jew. It was the annual reminder of God's promises and God's greatest act of salvation in the history of the world until that point. Now I emphasize until that point. Even our English word Passover reminds us of what the feast was designed to remind the people of. What it was designed to teach them about. The, the feast was designed to remind the people of God of the day that God's wrath passed over his people, but fell upon the Egyptians. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story, let me give you the Cliff Notes version of the book of Exodus. Okay, you can go read the full version. But here's the cliff notes. The book of Exodus begins with a dismal portrayal of the people of God. They are imprisoned, forced into difficult labor, and their children are being thrown into the Nile River by an evil Egyptian empire. They are portrayed as helpless, hopeless, and crying out to God, begging that he might save them. And in Exodus chapter 6... God answers, and this is what he says. Exodus 6 should be on the screen, verse 5. God says, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, 
whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I'm the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and the greatest acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God hears the prayers of the people he made promises to, and God answers them. God calls Moses to himself, sends Moses on a mission to confront Pharaoh. God pummels the Egyptians with supernatural plagues from heaven. Pharaoh continuously refuses to free God's people, and after nine truly awful plagues, God warns of a tenth and final plague. That God was going to unleash the fullness of God's wrath upon every household in Egypt so that the firstborn son of each household will die. And there's one way of escape from this plague. You must follow God's instructions very carefully. Kill a spotless lamb. Make a sacrifice. Spread its blood on the doorpost of your house. Eat the lamb together in your home and prepare to leave because the next day you'll be leaving Egypt. All those who ignored God and did not hide beneath the blood of the lamb experienced the wrath of God. All who trusted God and hid beneath the blood of the lamb were passed over. They did not experience the wrath of God. The lamb's blood atoned, it covered their house, and no one in the house had to die. In fact, the next day, they would make their way to the promised land, being lavished with the riches of Egypt on their way out. They would walk out of Egypt, walk through the Red Sea on dry ground, only to turn around to watch the most powerful army in the world be crushed by the full force of the Red Sea, collapsing over top of them. And God fulfilled his promise that he would be known, not only by the Israelites, but by the Egyptians. The people of God then followed the Lord pillar of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night. They eat miracle bread from heaven, miracle water from a rock. The Exodus story is a story about God's display of power, of holiness, of wrath, of grace, of mercy, of faithfulness to his promises. It's a story about the fact that there is one God, and there is only one way to that God, and it's through the way God sets, not us. Such a salvation deserves to be remembered. See, for the people of Israel, things would not always be so magnificent and clear and joyful as that day that they marched out of Egypt toward freedom. It's not every day God parts a Red Sea. Sometimes you're 40 years in a wilderness. It's not every day that God does miraculous, wonderful, crazy, awesome, beautiful things that are just so clear to you. It puts, pulls you to your knees in worship. Sometimes it's the, it's the army coming in on top of you that speaks a louder word than the things you know about God. So what must you do in that moment? You have to remember what you've seen of God, what you know of God. 
what, what you know God to have done for you in the past, which speaks to the promises yet fulfilled to come in the future, right? So, so there, there's a necessity for people to remember, and there's this proclivity for people to forget. The, the story of the Old Testament is the people of God seeing miraculous things and quickly forgetting those miraculous things. So even in the instruction about this blood of the lamb for the people and how it was that God's wrath would pass over their house, even in the instructions in Exodus chapter 12, God is already putting into place a way in which they can be reminded of this moment. So, so consider Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12, verse 12. This is, the, uh, this is the moment where God's giving them the instruction, right? He says, I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No plague will befall, befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, verse 14, listen to what God instructs. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So God, even in his initial instructions for this great day of salvation, says, you're going to need to regularly remember this moment. And the means by which I'm going to give you to regularly remember this moment is a time of feasting together where you retell the story. You retell the old story. And you rejoice in what God has done back then so you can hope in what God has promised you for the future. The, the Passover became this very practical, pragmatic sort of tool of the God of the universe for instructing and sustaining the faith of God's people. Not only for this generation, but for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Imagine eating the Passover meal together where the head of the household gets everyone together and retells the story. And the children ask questions. Well, what about this? And what happened here? And, and then you provide the answer to the story. And every year you're reminding them of the kind of God that you serve based upon the kinds of things that he's already done for you. And you all eat unleavened bread because that's what the Israelites ate on that night when they had to hurry to the promised land the next day. And you eat lamb and you discuss the significance of the blood of the lamb being placed on the door so God's wrath would pass over your house every year, every generation. The people of God were to remember a very particular act of salvation in a very unique way. Now, fast forward a thousand years. And here sits Jesus doing exactly that, reflecting on God's great act of salvation, celebrating with his disciples a remembrance of God's most mighty work in the history of the world thus far. And as Jesus sits at the Passover meal, Jesus goes off script. 
There was a tradition to the way Passover is done. There, there were certain things that you said, a certain pathway to telling the story. I mean, you might have traditions at Christmas, and you tell the Christmas story. There was a, there was a, there's a way about going, orchestrating the dinner, but Jesus now goes off script. He does what only Jesus would do, could do, has authority to do. He sits at a meal, commanded to be observed, by God himself, the people had been observing or failing to observe for a thousand years. And Jesus seemingly assigns new meaning to this meal. Jesus says, Jesus assigns <laughs> a new element to a meal that they had been sharing for a thousand years. But it's not really a new meaning that Jesus assigns as much as as it is an illumination of the Passover's meal's fulfilled meaning. What the Passover meal always meant, just the world had not known it yet. The Israelites had not just been remembering the Passover story for a thousand years only for their spiritual nourishment, not only to keep them in the faith, They had been remembering the Passover story for a thousand years so that they might recognize the greatest act of salvation that was going to happen in the world. When God ordained the sacrifice of the spotless lamb in Exodus 12, 5, under which they must hide under its blood in order for the wrath of God to pass over them. When God gave that instruction, he gave it with an intention He gave it with an intent to foreshadow a different spotless lamb whose blood we must hide under so that the wrath of God might pass over us. When God saved his people from slavery in Egypt and destroyed Pharaoh, he's preparing the world for an even grander salvation of a much larger people, more diverse, and a much more powerful slave master will be crushed under the weight of the wrath of God. And John the Baptist knew exactly what Jesus was coming to fulfill when he saw Jesus. When John the Baptist looks up and sees Jesus and and the day that Jesus comes to be baptized to inaugurate his ministry on the world, listen to what John says in John 1.29. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On this night... Before Jesus' blood would be splattered on the wooden post of a cross, Jesus sits down for a Passover feast. And he essentially says, these things are actually about me. There's a new covenant and a new salvation that these things were always pointing to. Let's look back at the text again, verse 22. As they were eating, he he took the bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank it. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So Jesus, in this moment, institutes a new way of remembering 
something that we call the Lord's Supper, or perhaps you've called it the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving, or perhaps you've just called it the communion, which comes from the word fellowship or participation. Jesus gave a command to his disciples, which is not recorded here in Mark, but it is clear in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 19, when, when he says, this is my body, which is given for you. He says, do this, this is a command, do this in remembrance of me. So now there's a new meal, a new process, so that now we teach the next generation and the next generation, and we remind ourselves of a great act of salvation where we retell the old story to make sure that in our moment of darkness, we don't forget what it is that God's done for us in the past and what it is he's promised to do for us in the future. All four gospel writers highlight the importance of this moment, and we actually have a window into the first century churches observing this through the letter to the Corinthians. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, should be on the screen, this is what Paul writes to them. Now, now keep in mind, this is two decades after Jesus has died and rose again. So, so this is 20 years after the command, do this in remembrance of me. And here's the testimony that apparently they did. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. What's he doing? He's retelling the old story. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this was my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, previous work, until he comes, future work. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. In other words, this practice of observing this meal in remembrance of what God has done is one of the gifts of grace to the church that they might never forget what the main thing is. So that's a bit of background. Okay, that was the introduction, so here we go. <laughs> that's a bit of foundational material that we need to start piecing together the significance of the supper, but there's still one more bit of work to be done before we can positively define what this is and what God's doing through it. Because over the centuries, different church traditions have assigned new and foreign meanings to what's happening here. See, Jesus can assign new meaning because he's Jesus. The church cannot assign new meaning because it's not Jesus. So we have to go back to what Jesus said rather than what the church has said. But along the way, throughout the history of the world, there has been different meanings assigned to the Lord's Supper. So we need to talk about what Jesus is not saying before we can nail down what he is saying. So two things God is not doing in the Lord's Supper. Number one, God is not, God is not re-crucifying the physical Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Through the Lord's Supper, God is not re-crucifying the physical Jesus. Jesus. Now, this is one of the points where our church's doctrine is very different from Roman Catholic doctrine. So many people, how, how many people here grew up Roman Catholic? There's probably a lot, right? Yeah, lots. So, okay, so, you, so you're going to track with me the differences even as I describe this. Roman Catholicism teaches 
that when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, Roman Catholicism teaches that Jesus is saying that when you take the Lord's Supper, it is literally and physically the physical body and blood of Jesus. That the bread of the cup is the real physical body, that the, uh, that the cup is the real physical blood of Jesus, and once blessed by the priests. Now, this is what Catholics call the doctrine of transubstantiation, right? Transubstantiation. If you did not know that word, you can write that down and impress somebody later on. Transubstantiation. And that is not the position of our church, because that is not what we see in the New Testament. Jesus says many things in the Gospels that are meant to serve us as powerful metaphors. And he does this consistently. I mean, Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm the bread of life. I'm the gate. I'm the vine. You're the branches. I'm the light of the world. And none of us, I don't think, believe that Jesus is a physical door, physical bread, physical gate, physical vine, or physically and literally light. Rather, Jesus utilizes metaphors to make theological points. You tracking with me? Jesus is no more physical bread and wine of the Lord's Supper than he is truly a physical door, gate, or vine in any of those metaphors. When Jesus says, this is my body, and this is my blood holding up these, these elements. He's assigning new symbolism to the Passover meal so that we can remember a new act of salvation. And Jesus intends for Christians to deeply reflect on the cross when they physically break the bread, pour out the cup, partake in the meal. God is not re-crucifying a physical Jesus, over and over again, each time the Lord's Supper is taken. Number two, God is not, through the Lord's Supper, God is not giving saving grace. God is not giving saving grace. Now, the wording is important. Because the Roman Catholic doctrine teaches that the Lord's Supper is the literal and real, physical receiving of Jesus, they have assigned to the Supper saving power, right? I mean, you need to receive Jesus to be saved, then you must take the supper in order to receive Jesus and be saved. By that, I mean the supper, in the supper, they believe you actually receive physical, tangible grace, which contributes to your salvation in the long run. So whereas we would say the supper helps us to remember a salvation we've already received through faith in Jesus, Catholic doctrine would be more comfortable saying the supper contributes to our salvation because in it we actually receive saving grace. And that's a big difference. Do you hear the difference? Protestants teach that salvation is a miracle of God in which God grants eternal life to someone who trusts Jesus. It's a miracle. It happens in a moment, forever solidified in eternity. We're not saved by what we do, only by who we trust, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But Catholics will understand salvation to be a process in which you partake in certain sacraments, try not to sin so much, and along the way, you get more and more security for a future salvation, hopefully. And the difference becomes clear in the scenario, which if you've been around our church for a while, you've heard me. Uh, explain the difference in this way. I'll often explain the difference this way when someone asks me, and this is a great way to evangelize, by the way. 
Um, if you're in conversation with somebody, say, do you know one of the primary differences between sort of common level Roman Catholicism and common level Protestant theology? What our church believes versus what the church, why we're not Catholic. Do you know why? Well, no, I don't. I mean, one way, great way to answer is say, imagine a scenario where you're standing before God and he asks you a question. Why should I allow you into my kingdom? Now, the Roman Catholic, for the most part, this is a generalization, will answer with a list of many reasons, okay? I didn't commit this sin, this sin, this sin, this sin. In other words, I stayed away from the really bad ones. I participated in mass pretty regularly, twice a year, right? I, or a hundred times, you know, it doesn't matter. I participated in math, mass over and over. I, I participated in the Eucharist. I said confession to the priest. They would answer with a list of things that all sort of pile up enough to say, I can come into your kingdom. But I pray and I hope if you were to ask any one of the church members here at St. Rose Community Church, why should God allow you into the kingdom on the last day? I pray they would not answer because I was a member of St. Rose Community Church. I pray the only thing that they would say is because of the blood of the Lamb that I'm hiding under in faith, that the wrath of God might pass over me. That's a very big difference. One relies very much on you. The other relies entirely on grace. Nothing contributes to our salvation, nothing but saving faith and trust in what Jesus has done, not what we can do for him. So God is not giving saving grace through the Lord's Supper. It's already been given in Jesus. So those are two things that are not. And now for my personal favorite part of this sermon, three things God is doing in the Lord's Supper. Three things God is doing in the Lord's Supper. Number one, through the Lord's Supper, God is turning our eyes to what Jesus did on the cross. Or put another way, the Lord's Supper keeps at the center of Christianity the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. That is, the act of dying on the cross where Jesus serves as my substitute. Where he takes from God the wrath that I deserved to receive from God. This is the essence of of the good news of Christianity, and it is what we must remind ourselves of daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, all the time, that Jesus' blood was poured out, and Mark says this particularly, verse 24, end of verse 24, this is the blood of my covenant, Jesus says, which is poured out for many. Now that word for is an important word. For, it's it's, it's in the place of, it's on their behalf, it's for them. He's taking upon themselves what those disciples should take. And Jesus has already said this pretty clearly in Mark chapter 10, verse 44. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And then he says, and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many if you're not a Christian and you just stumbled into this place thinking it was something else and you're just here, you're in luck because this is the essence of what we believe in this place. That, that we are sinners 
Every one of us deserving punishment from an eternal God whom we do not worship the way he deserves. And that God, or rather I should say, but that God loves us so much that he made a way that the judgment we deserve passes over us because it was poured onto Jesus. He made a way of forgiveness by pouring out his judgment on a sinless, spotless sacrifice, namely Jesus, the eternal son of God, born into this world in order to die for this world. Paul says in Romans 5 that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. Every single one of your failures will be passed over. Because the wrath has already been poured out on another. If you're a Christian this morning, I am sure that you came here in need of many things. But I can guarantee you this. You need to rehearse the central message of Christianity and all of its implications this morning. Jesus died for you needs to carry the adequate amount of weight and reality that that sentence means. Jesus believed that you would need to rehearse this reality over and over again and the Lord's Supper forces this rehearsal and it makes it physically tangible to us. The Lord's Supper emphasizes to all of our physical senses this isn't something that's made up. The gospel is real and true. When we feel the bread in our hands and we consider the fact that Jesus' body was beaten and broken and buried for us and we see the dark crimson color of the wine in the cup, we remember his blood was intentionally and willingly poured out in my place. When we eat it and we drink it, we realize a fresh that we are benefactors of the sacrifice, that, that we taste the blessings of what only Christ did for us. We are one with him. He is one with us. What he took, he took for us and for our sins. As I preach, you hear the gospel. As you partake in the Lord's Supper, you experience it afresh. And it reminds all of your senses, this is not a myth. This is not made up. What he took, he took for us and for our sins. Drew, Drew let me borrow this fantastic little book called A Gospel Primer for Christians. And he, he gave it to me as I uh, went away a couple weeks ago, and he said, just read a section of this every single morning. And I was like, okay. And so a ton of it has just made it into the sermon. It is absolutely incredible. It's basically one man's reflection on his desperate need and commitment to reminding himself of the cross every single day. And he's got several things, several little chapters and poems that he's written and just things to help remind him of what is true. And I just want to read a few excerpts for you this morning from that book. And it should be on the screen so you can look along with me. 
He writes, God did not give us his gospel message just so we could embrace it and be converted. Actually, he offers it to us every day as a gift that keeps on giving to us everything we need for life and for godliness. The wise believer learns this truth early and becomes proficient in extracting available benefits from the gospel each day. We extract these benefits by being absorbed in the gospel, speaking it to ourselves when necessary, and by daring to reckon it true in all we do. The more I exult in the reality of justification in Christ, that is, that is that I'm seen righteous in God's eyes because of what Jesus did for me, the more I position myself to experience the full governing force of its sanctifying power in my life. There's simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, the lies of the world and the devil, than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. The deeper I go into the gospel, the more I comprehend and confess aloud the depth of my sinfulness. A gruesome death like the one that Christ endured for me would only be required for one who is exceedingly sinful and unable to appease a holy God. Consequently, when I consider the necessity and manner of his death along with the love and selflessness behind it, I am laid bare and utterly exposed for the sinner I am. And such awareness of my sinfulness does not drag me down, but it actually serves to lift me up by magnifying my appreciation of God's forgiving grace in my life. And the more I appreciate the magnitude of God's forgiveness of sins, the more I love him and delight to show him love through heartfelt expressions of worship. If you're here this morning and you are suffocating under the weight of your mistakes and your failures, Jesus intends that through the supper, you turn your eyes to the cross. You do not have to keep punishing yourself for failures that Jesus already took the punishment for. Look to the cross and be comforted. Be thankful. See God's love for you. Be grounded in what matters in the world. If you're here this morning and you have drifted into arrogance or selfishness or worldliness, and if your logic has become the logic of the world and you sound a lot more like your non-Christian friends when you talk about plans for your life than, than your Christian friends, look to the cross. Be humbled. See what is true life in the world? See the cross as the clearest example of love and godliness and glory. Let the cross see your arrogance and idolatry for what it is and what it deserves. And if you're here and you've forgotten why you're even doing this Christian thing, look at the cross and be reminded. Remember what it is that sinners will receive if they don't turn to Christ. Remember it is what they're offered if they do turn to Christ. Consider your sacrifices as small in comparison <laughs> to the sacrifice that's been made for you. Through the Lord's Supper, God intends to turn your eyes to what Jesus did on the cross. But that's not all. Number two, through the Lord's Supper, God is turning our eyes to what Jesus is doing in his church. Now, this is, I think this is the part that we just miss big time. God chose for us to remember his great salvation through a meal that we share with other people. 
Remember, Jesus' words as he says this cup that is poured out is the new covenant. It's the new relational agreement between God and man. It's the cup of a new relationship where God is living and active now. When we partake in the Lord's Supper, it's as if we've accepted an invitation to enjoy table fellowship with Jesus Christ and with one another. We do not gather around an altar when we partake in the Lord's Supper. The sacrifice has been made. We gather around a table because there is now only fellowship to be had with a risen Jesus and with his followers. Paul says this about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation? That word participation, if you were in our Doctrine of the Church class, same work, word as the fellowship, the koinonia, the, the participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break. Is it not participation in the body of Christ? And look at verse 17. Because there's one bread, and we who are many are one body, we all partake in the one bread. There's a sense in which that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we sit around the table with Jesus as if he's here in the room with us, and we sit with our brothers and sisters proclaiming in unity, we're saved by this Jesus. The thing that brings us together in this room is not the same skin color, not the same language, not the same socioeconomic status, not because we all love Georgia football, although some of you should. It's nothing like that, right? The thing that draws us together is the blood that covers us. The fact that God has passed his wrath over us. And that drawing together is an essential element to the Lord's Supper. Edmund Clooney, a a theologian, writes this in his chapter on the Lord's Supper. Listen to what he says. The Lord's Supper is not a self-served frozen TV dinner enjoyed alone before the television screen. Baptism is not to be celebrated in the privacy of one's bath shower. Sacramental blessing is to be found in the company of God's people. We find our sweetest companionship and fellowship around our common faith in Jesus. And this is one of the many reasons that you are living in a state of unrepentant sin if you do not join yourself to a church where you can partake in the supper. You cannot partake in the supper on your couch by yourself. It's the gathering around the table with the other believers that's just as essential to the bread and the cup itself. It is a participation with those whom God has redeemed. You see, because the gospel changes not just our relationship with God, but it changes our relationship with other people who've been saved by God. I need you to look at one more quote with me. From that book, it was so good. Listen to this. The cross exposes me before the eyes of other people, informing them of the depth of my depravity. If I wanted others to think highly of me, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect Son of God was required that I might be saved. But when I stand at the foot of the cross and am seen by others, Under the light of that cross, I'm left uncomfortably exposed before their eyes. Indeed, the most humiliating gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Golgotha's hill. My self-righteous reputation is left in ruins in the wake of its revelations. When the worst facts about me exposed to the view of others, I find myself feeling I have truly nothing left to hide. 
Thankfully, the more exposed I see that I am by the cross, the more I find myself opening up to others about the ongoing issues of sin in my life. Why would anyone be shocked to hear of my struggles with past and present sin when the cross already told them that I'm a desperately sinful person? The more open I am confessing my sins to fellow Christians, the more I enjoy the healing of the Lord in response to their grace-filled counsel and prayers, experiencing richer levels of Christ's love and companionship with the saints. I give thanks for the gospel's role in forcing my hand towards self-disclosure and the freedom that follows. If you take the Lord's Supper by yourself, you're missing what the Lord's Supper is meant to accomplish. That we in this room have solidarity as people who have fallen short and as people who have found a savior and found one another. Last, last, last truth. Through the Lord's Supper, God turns our eyes to what Jesus will do in the end. In Mark chapter 14, verse 25, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't say, I will never drink of this with you again. Jesus says, one day we're going to have another meal. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, describes that meal, that meal at the end of time with all those who believed in Jesus celebrating the completion of the story. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It's granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six that when we partake in the supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One day we will feast with our Savior face to face. And when we partake in it, there'll be no more sins left for us to repent of. <laughs> that won't be an element of the supper anymore. Just a joyful celebration that all that is now behind us. So how do we respond through the Lord's Supper? Let me just hammer these out to you in quick succession. Three ways we respond. Number one, we reflect. We reflect. We're about to partake in the Lord's Supper. And as they're passing out the elements, uh, that will be a time where I'm going to ask Drew to come up and just sort of play quietly. And that will be a time where we take time to reflect. The Lord's Supper is not for unbelievers. It is for those that have a salvation to remember. You are either a participant in the saving benefits of the blood of Jesus, or you are not. You're either a follower of Jesus and saved by your faith in him, or you are not. And if you're not a Christian this morning, we want to ask you just to abstain, not partake. One of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is to draw a line in the sand and sort of make you you have to make a decision in the chair. Am I really one of them or am I not? If you're not, we encourage you to not partake and reflect on where you stand with God because that's the most important thing. If you are a Christian, this is an opportunity for you to examine yourself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
Verse 28, it said, Paul says, let the person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. The supper is a time to reflect on your life and to ask a simple question. Does my life align with what I believe about the cross? Does my life, the decisions I'm making in my life, from an outsider looking in, does that align with what I say I believe happened at the cross? And who it was that died there and rose again. Upon that reflection, you will likely see things where it doesn't line up. Which leads us to our second response to the supper, which is we repent. We reflect, then we repent. As we consider the cross and the sin that put Jesus on the cross, we see it for what it really is, gruesome and ugly, leading only to death. And that should lead us to repentance. It should lead us to just actively seek the Lord's mercy, to, to ask him to help us to turn away from these things. And the Lord's Supper's built-in reminder to keep us repenting from sins that would lead us astray. Now, let me pause there. We all sin. We all fail. Sinlessness is not evidence of a true Christian. Let me say that again. Sinlessness is not the evidence of a true Christian. Rather, repentance is the evidence of a true Christian. When Christians sin, they want to repent. <laughs> they turn from it. They hate it. They want to overcome it. They want to turn to God to ask him to fight it. In the Lord's Supper, we turn to Christ for strength to help us keep fighting. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 5, when a man falls into unrepentant sin, he refuses to let go of that sin because he loves that sin more than he loves Jesus. Paul says, don't even eat with such a one. Now, what's he talking about? Don't let them partake in the supper which is supposed to symbolize their forgiveness, transformation, and repentance because it doesn't look like they're a real Christian. We're all sinners, but the mark of true Christianity is that we repent of that sin because we love Jesus, which leads us to the final response. We rejoice because as soon as we repent of that sin, see it for what it is, we remember that every ounce of that sin was paid for. That there's nothing left to pay. There's no penance we have to pay. There's no steps we got to take. There's no way we need to earn God's favor. It's been earned by Jesus already and made available to us by the cross. So we repent of our sin because we hate it. And then we rejoice because it's totally forgiven. That God looks at us as sons and daughters that he cherishes us and loves us, that when we look at the cross, we see the gruesomeness of sin and how much God loves sinners. And so we rejoice, and that's why the Eucharist is referred to as the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. We rejoice in thanksgiving. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you, if you, uh, I'm going to invite Drew to come up. I'm going to invite you, if you're handing out the elements, we're going to take a time where we do those three steps together, and then we will partake together, and respond in song. So let me say a word of prayer, and uh, then we'll pass out the elements. Lord, thank you so much for this moment of worship. We pray that you would help us to embrace what the God of the universe, what you have intended to do through the supper. Help us, God.
to turn our eyes to what you have done, turn, your, uh, turn our eyes to what you're doing in this church, in this moment, and turn our eyes to what you will do one day. Father, we pray, uh, guide our time of worship in Jesus' name, amen. All right, brothers, you can come up and uh, to the front, and they're going to pass these elements out. And uh, here in just a couple minutes, once it's all passed out, um, I'll lead us in partaking together.
verse 22, Jesus says, as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Let's partake of it together. verse 23 he says it took the cup he took the cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them and they all drank of it let's take the cup together verse 25 he says truly i say to you i will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when i drink it anew in the kingdom of god so let's stand together and let's rejoice